We're going to figure out how, or at least put a little emphasis on the idea that no matter what the circumstances are in your life, the Lord is still good. And if you and I are uh, working through Scripture and theology and even some of these biographies that we're looking at in Scripture, if we're looking through them properly, we're going to have a little extra help and a little extra understanding in that actual idea because there are a lot of times in our life that it just doesn't feel that way. And right now as a culture, as a people, as a church, as a community, uh, we're getting news every day that it just doesn't feel like God is either all that good or all that present. And our feelings can be so deceptive, so we don't put much uh, thought into those. But I tell you what, they are powerful. And if we don't harness them and bring them under control, under subjection to the Word of God and the truth of God, we land ourselves in a lot of trouble. So this morning, we will be working on that. This morning's sermon is, it should be better than this. It should be better than this. Before we get there, where were we the last couple weeks? These things... Uh, they're coming together, so as we go through the review time uh, every week, just please uh, just kind of go back for a couple minutes to where we were because your life story, if you just pull out snippets of it, won't make a whole lot of sense. Sometimes it will look like the greatest life ever lived. Sometimes, some days, some five minutes will look like the worst life that have ever been lived, right? So we see them in, in totality, and that's what we're doing right now as we work through these biographies. We're getting a chance to see them start move forward, finish, how they love and care for, whoever's next. So the last couple weeks we were at, uh, if you remember, have you been honoring your mother? Put a question mark up there because it's actually a question now. Right, have you, can you honor, have you honored your mother? And uh, I've been fielding questions from several people in the last couple weeks. Listen, honoring someone uh, doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in their presence, you have to give them access, you have to do certain things that open you up to pain, struggle, heartache, uh, the next time around of, of being betrayed or whatever else. Sometimes the only thing you can do to honor some people is to pray for them properly. So if that is one of your parents, if it's a destructive relationship for your mother or your father and it's something that every time you get close to, you end up getting burnt by someone that is vicious, someone that really kind of despises their own life and they bring you into it with them. If that is your case, listen, a lot of times the only thing you can do to honor is to pray for them and not to hate them. You don't have that right. And as you and I find ourselves praying for those, especially those that have done us wrong, we find ourselves really kind of loving them better because you're going to be brought into the presence of God and you're going to be looking at God and saying, help them, love them, draw them, break their heart, renew their life, right? Even save them. So have you honored your mother this week? And mothers, I asked you, are you building relationships that are going to make you mothers of honor? Right? Are you struggling with like-minded people that understand exactly what you're going through and they're going to help you in all the ways you need it to live a life of honor? Last week we were talking about King Saul and I told you last week we would go through really the same pieces of the story only from David's perspective this week and that's where we'll be. But what do we see in Saul's story? He is the king of fears. He is green-eyed and becomes yellow-bellied. He is, he is envious and becomes cowardice. He becomes a coward. He is, his fear and his insecurity are creating things in his life that lead to envy, jealousy, and covetousness. He covets things that other people has. And it's just absolutely insane to think about the context of a king coveting what someone else has. But when you live in an honor culture, he sees David receiving more honor. And now all of a sudden his heart is envious. It's jealous. He covets that. 
And what happens? These things work in, they, they work in order, right? Fear, insecurity, envy, jealousy, covetousness. And then you get to this red-eyed rage, this bitterness. And that's what we see that takes over Saul's life. So we look at that story last week and we see the idea that envy will destroy your heart. It will make you exaggerate. It will make you paranoid. It will make you so many things in that story of 1 Samuel that we read last week. It will just destroy your life. And then the cowardice that comes after that destroys everything that's left. You know, if envy destroys your heart and makes you look at things differently, makes you look at people differently, you know, we talked about this context last week that Saul has an ally in David, and yet he sees him and he is constantly uh, looking him for the worst possible motives on David's end. It's a terrifying prison to be in. It destroys his heart. And then what happens is Saul's life then spirals out of control. That cowardice that comes because he is insecure in who he is and what he has been given... The idea that something can be taken from him is now making him a coward on every other level. So as we watch his life unfold, what do we see? We really just see this disaster that starts in a heart of fear and insecurity. And so as we go into this, this idea of security and insecurity, it plays right into today. And we're going to look at the story of David. We're going to look at the the story of... um, It should be better than this. I am due something. I should get what I deserve. And as we celebrate even the the graduations this week and so many other things, we've got these young kids that are coming up and they're becoming men and women and they're going out into the world. I just want you to understand a, a small piece this morning. That idea is a trap. It is an absolute trap. Well, I should get what I deserve. Okay? I'm working hard. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I should, get, I should get the spot on the team. I should get the job. I should get the promotion. And though there may be a merit of truth, if our hearts churn constantly in that idea, you're going to get let down. It's going to be an absolute trap. And so I found a couple comments this morning that I really like. The first one is Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. Thomas Watson. Man, what a powerful thing, right? The bait's been laid. That discontented heart has now made you prime and ready for the enemy to tempt you. How about this one from Francis Schaeffer? The beginning of man's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. Four or five years ago, I preached on the idea that thankfulness, this humility that comes with being thankful, it may be the only incorruptible thing in the world other than the Holy Spirit, God's prayer, all these other things. But these emotions, these feelings that we have, the one that is the least dangerous is to be thankful. Because even love can be twisted and perverted into certain things. Our culture culture does it all the time. But if I am truly thankful, thankful to God and thankful for the help of others, I am constantly pushing myself into a position of humility, a position of need. And those things honor the heart of God. So if you're going to cultivate anything in your life, make it a thankful heart. Look around and count your blessings. And you know, when we look at this temptation that things should be better, this temptation is as old as mankind. Adam and Eve were in the garden, in God's presence, in a world where there were no carnivores. Right? I had a guy at work laugh at me a couple weeks ago when I made a comment about riding the dinosaur first. Listen, they lived in a garden where you could pet every animal. You had free range of everything. 
And it said God came and communed. He communed with them. He spoke with them daily. They had all of that. And yet the temptation was it should be better. It could be. Take and eat. God is lying. His heart is deception. And so you and I, we see, we look backward and we see this trap is as old, this temptation is as old as mankind. And this temptation has been really overplayed in our culture. I mean, what were you told? I mean, I tell my kids the same thing, so I'm not discrediting everything we're going to talk about this morning. I am just telling you that if you put your hope and faith in the idea that if I do this and I do that, A and B are going to equal C or 1 plus 2 is going to equal 3, this life is going to kick you right in the teeth. There's going to come that moment when it doesn't. There's going to come that moment when you wake up and what you deserve is not what you're getting. And our theology is big enough to handle that. If we'll look through these stories. But this temptation has been overplayed in our culture. Work hard. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you'll get your due. You know, every second or third person you would talk to you know, in our culture right now, they would look at you and tell you one, two, five, ten stories of when that actually didn't happen. I worked hard. I did what I was supposed to do. And I got, I mean, even right now, just to make it really, really personal for all of us, I got laid off. My job was taken. Showed up one morning and there was this virus and everything shut down and now my family's hurting and I'm stuck. Or There's a there's hundred different stories that sound like this. But you would wake up and you would say, man, I worked hard. I've done my best. I should get what I am due. That's what I've always been told. And just, it's a trap. And this idea, I want to frame it to you for a whole book. It's the Job trap. It's the Job trap. I want you to, to, to just dive into that idea why. Job is a righteous man. He's not perfect, but he's righteous. You say, well, who said that? God himself. <laughs> he's a righteous man. And yet, that whole book is Job getting the opposite of what you would think a righteous man is due. His stuff is taken, his wealth is gone, his children are killed, his health is taken, his wife tells him to curse God and die. All of that stuff in the first two chapters. This is a Job trap. If I do the right thing, say the right thing, work hard, I'll get what I am due. The idea of this, this Job philosophy is simply this. God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. That makes sense to us. But here's the issue we have to keep in mind. The perspective from mankind is, and this is what got all of Job's friends in trouble. The perspective of mankind is God rewards the righteous. He punishes the wicked right now and in my perspective. That's the Job trap. When you read through the book of Job, you see his, his friends come in and they make some really good points. Like if you were to isolate any of those chapters by themselves and read through them, you would say, this sounds right to me. God honors the righteous. He blesses the righteous. God punishes the wicked. Those that are far from him are going to be cast out. Like this stuff matches what's wrong. What is wrong is the concept was right now. God does these things right now. And God does them in the way that I deem them proper. It's a trap. It's an absolute trap. And you and I fall for it all the time. And I'm going to show you in the life of David, and then I'm going to up it one notch as we get moving through. But the idea of it should be better. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is what? It's the chapter with David and Goliath. 
one of the most fascinating, amazing, heroic stories that we've ever read, that has ever been known to all mankind. This little shepherd boy stands up against this nine-foot-tall Goliath. Like, we even use his name to talk about things that are huge now. This Goliath, and he takes him down after 40 days of the nation of Israel, hidden, scared. Where is Saul? He's in his tent. Who's the one that should be facing off? It is Saul. It is the king. He was the one that was head and shoulders above everyone in the nation of Israel. He should have been the one to step out on the battlefield. But he would have had to stand with someone that was chest, head, and shoulders above him. So he's fearful. What do we see in that passage with David? He is fearless. David is faithful. He does what he's called to do when he steps into this battle. What does he say? This is the Lord's fight. This is not my fight. Goliath mocks him and laughs. And he says, what what am I, a dog that you come to me swinging this little stick? Who is this person? It's a mockery. And David steps in. Right? And instead of going to war with all the things that, that the world would tell you you need to fight, he has no sword, he has no shield. He has a sling and five stones. He uses what he has to slay the giant. He is faithful. I love this one. He's friendly. Say, what are you talking about? Well, read through the last part of 17 with me. Verse 55 says this. As soon as Saul, Saul David, go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down to the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Verse 58. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse. Keep reading with me. Chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. 18 verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So what do you and I see here? David is fearless, this shepherd boy that steps in. He's faithful. God has used him to slay the, the, the lion and the bear. God has used him to protect the sheep and now the, the sheep is the nation of Israel and David is going to step in and fight in the Lord's battle. He is faithful. He is friendly. Think of this concept. Jonathan is the prince of the kingdom. And we talked about this a couple months ago and the idea of how awesome Jonathan is as a character. This young man is humble. And in this moment of celebration, instead of being like his dad and wanting the glory for himself, Jonathan hands him his sword, his bow, his shield to honor such a wonderful moment. He is friendly and he is fruitful. When he goes out, things happen. The Lord blesses. How about this one? 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9. What happens? You all remember this story. We read it last week. They come back in from battle and the women are singing in the city and they say Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. So what do we see? David is now frightening to Saul. 
He is a frightening character. His life means something. His life has meaning, purpose. The hand of God is on it. And in that, there are certain people, even in our life right now, that will be frightened with what is happening in your life. Sometimes they will be very, very close to you and they will not be able to deal with what is happening. What is God doing in your heart? What is he doing in your life? The people that you work with, especially those that don't know the Lord, does your life frighten them? There will be moments that it will. There will be moments that it should. You say, what do you mean? Well, you, our lives as Christians poke holes in the foundation of their life. If their life is power and their life is money and their life is stature and yet you and I walk in and we just humbly live before God and we're being blessed and we're joy filled and every time they speak to you they feel the light of God in your life and through your life. Every time they speak to you they get blessing, they get thankfulness, they don't get curses and gripes. It becomes frightening to them because they can't figure out why their life isn't as strong or as sturdy or as blessed as yours. So we see David's life is frightening to the king. And finally in 1 Samuel 18, what happens? Well, Saul has, has already tried to kill David once. Then Saul says, I'm going to let you marry my daughter. Then Saul takes that daughter and gives her to another man because he has uh, another moment of David hatred flare up. And so we get into a second occasion where Saul's second daughter is now given to David as a wife. So what do we see about David? He's forgiving. Remember this young man is sitting in, in Saul's presence and he's playing the, the harp. He's playing instruments and he's calming Saul down. And what does Saul do? It says that a rage comes over him and he picks up the spear and he slings it at David and tries to kill him. That's the first time. Before we get through the end of 19, you see that twice. You see Saul take his first wife that he promised David and give her to someone else. You see this just destructive behavior. David is forgiving. And so all of these pieces, if anybody has a right to say it should be better than this, I just wrote you the story. You say, what's it look like to live this life? I just, I just wrote the example for you. It's David's life. He's done nothing to deserve the circumstances that he's going to find himself in. David is faithful. He is helpful. He is blessed. His life is blessed. I've asked you all repeatedly, do you want to live next to people and do life with people that the Lord blesses? And everybody says, yes. I want those people close to me that when they speak, it sounds like God, that they bless instead of curse, that when they put their hands to something, it actually gets done. I want people like that near me. And David is that kind of person. His life is blessed. And he is committed to blessing others around him. And yet his story has him situated with a king that despises him and has tried to kill him and has manipulated him. Every decision that Saul makes in this passage is one that sets David up for failure. I was watching a video, a kid's video, and one of the areas in this passage you can read for yourself, it comes out that David, the, the price, the bride price is a hundred Philistine crowns is what the video for children said. And I thought, boy, they dodged that bullet. Bravo. What's the bride price? Saul says, no money, David. I know you're a shepherd. I want a hundred Philistine crowns. I want the lives of a hundred Philistine people. What is Saul trying to do? He's trying to get David killed. And David, just to show the blessing of God, and his men bring back 200. 
Like this story is, is hard to deal with. It, it, it doesn't sound fair. Boy, isn't that a word we like to toss around. This is not fair. And I can't help but look at you this morning and say some of you have tremendous merit when you whisper that and when you cry that. If we were to look at your circumstances or some of the prayer requests that have come across the Facebook page, the church's page, my cell phone, you would just look and say, man, this does not feel fair. David's been abused and he's chosen to forgive. He's an ally in a world of real enemies. David is an ally. He's a real ally. He's a help. When there are real enemies running around, Saul has now made David his enemy. 1 Samuel 19 verse 1 says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all of his servants that they should kill David. So now we got another plan. Saul's going to murder his own son-in-law. This isn't fair. The situation should be better than this. If David right now is having a conversation with himself, and when you go to the Psalms, you see some real honest writing from a heartbroken person, and you're going to see it in there. God, where are you at? What is going on? Like even David, the man after God's own heart, struggles with this idea. And so I look to you this morning and just say, be free to struggle, but struggle with the Lord. Don't struggle against him. Don't get outside of your prayer closet and struggle. Struggle right in his presence. God, Father, Jesus, what is going on? I need your help. David does that in the Psalms. When you read through that, you'll see that. But David deserves better. He really does. He saves the whole nation from being slaves to the Philistines because nobody else was going to stand up against Goliath. Forty days in and he comes in and he mocks the nation, he mocks their God, he mocks their king and everybody just keeps their mouth shut and then the shepherd boy comes in and you see such a tremendous victory. David deserves better but he's getting hammered. This is not fair. Can I give you one better example? Matthew chapter 3, if you'll turn there. Can I give you one better? Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now for, this, uh, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, con- uh, then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, Matthew chapter 3, we see this. For about 30 years, Jesus has honored his Father with every moment of his life. Now, there is some real depth to that idea. Everything he's done, everything he's said, every thought he had, every intention of his heart. All has honored God the Father. Check perfection, check perfection, check perfection, check perfection. And in this moment, there is an audible calling. There's never been a greater compliment given than the one you and I just read, ever. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I am well pleased. 
There's never been any separation from God the Father and Jesus the Son. There's never been any sin that has interrupted their communication. He has lived these 30 years in perfect harmony with the will of God from all the way down to the recesses of his heart to every act he ever committed to everyone that he should have committed. Like he never missed an opportunity to do the right thing. That's fascinating. Not only did he not do the wrong thing, he never missed an opportunity to do the right thing. And if you live long enough, you're going to realize, like I have, that sometimes the, the guiltiest things you can come up with are the things where you had an opportunity to do something that was right and you missed it. Jesus never did that. And you and I would think it can only go up from here. If God's assessment, if the Father's assessment of my life is he is well pleased, then it can, man, straight to the stratosphere, let's do this. Right? It's the Mount of Transfiguration. It's, it's raising people from the dead. It's feeding the 5,000. What does Matthew 4, 1 say? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Does Jesus deserve this? Is this what is deserve, deserved in this moment of perfection as we listen to the audible voice of God speak and say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased? Is this fair that he's going to walk into this? And, and what's going on here? Look at verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and he said to him, if you are the son of God, I'll, if you scribble in your Bible... I scribbled insult. Insult. The passage right before, two verses before, the verbal voice of God is heard from those around. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen, the enemy operates with you this same way. Please listen to what I'm saying to you. He operates to you the same way. If he can get you to question who you are, who you are in God, who you are in Christ. If he can get you to question that, the temptation is halfway through. He looks to Jesus Christ and says, if you are the Son of God, it's not been confirmed yet. You may not really be that secure. You may not really be that good. That's an insult. He insults you when he jabs at you too. When that temptation comes, he won't leave you alone about who you are and where you stand. Jesus is Messiah, but let me tell you something. You and I are sons and daughters of God. If you have been bought into the family of God, blood bought into the family of God, your right standing is within the Lord, in God, John 17. Learn it, know it, repeat it constantly. It is the prayer that Jesus prays for you and I. That is your security. The enemy wants you to second guess who you are first. This is an absolute insult. The tempter doing what the tempter does. He said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, again... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
Verse 7, Jesus answered him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus answered him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 from this merited mountaintop. Jesus is on the mountaintop because he deserves to be there. There is no grace involved in that mountaintop he is on. It is totally earned. The only man, the only man in history to ever be able to say it was merited. That is where he is at. He is on the merited mountaintop and now he's going to be led into this unfair place of fasting of isolation, loneliness, and temptation. And he is going to face the devil in the hardest of moments. I've talked to so many people about the idea of temptation. I remember, I don't know if Charles Stanley come up with it or not, but he's the first person I ever heard preach on it. But if you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you need to halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Listen, the tempter, the enemy, is so... He's shrewd, he's intelligent, he's horrible, and he's wicked, but he is shrewd and he is intelligent. Forty days of fasting is when he comes. He doesn't come on day one when Jesus just left the mountaintop, when he still got a little food in his belly. He doesn't come on day one and start to push him to do ungodly things. Are you listening, church? Because he acts the same way with you. If you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you better be very, very careful with what decisions you make in the next five minutes and in the next five days. You better be looking at things that correct those issues. And so Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted. He's led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil after this mountaintop experience of hearing God say, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so he is led into this unfair spot. That was a good one. That was a, that was a man, man burp. But he is led right into this unfair spot. Of all of history, it's the one time up to then where a sinless person has been led into a really unfair spot. And so he's going to walk into it. 40 days of fasting, the enemy then shows up and starts to tempt him, starts to push him. He starts off by insulting him. He starts off by insulting who Christ is, his character, what he has done, where he is from, who his father is. He starts off there just like he starts with you and I, and then he rotates right into this idea of being hungry. But here's what I want, I want you to know something. If Jesus is worried right now about fairness, he's going to have a really hard time with the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross of Calvary. If he is speaking in his heart, this is unfair. This is unfair. I'm not getting my due. If he is speaking that now in the wilderness, in the temptation, in this moment that he is going to crush out of the park, he is going to hit this out of the park. But if he is worried walking into this right now about this moment of temptation or unfairness, he's going to have a really hard time in the Garden of Gethsemane in a couple years. Because when he looks into that bowl and he sees my sin and he sees yours, and he understands that the plan of God is now playing out to where that beating 
that crucifixion, if he's looking and seeing where that mockery, where they're going to pull his beard and spit in his face, where they're going to beat him, where they're going to hang him on a tree, where they're going to mock him with the sign above him, where they're going to put him between two thieves. Listen, if he's, if he's worried about the unfairness of the temptation, the Garden of Gethsemane is going to be really hard to swallow. The Lord has made his peace with who God is and what the plan is. And so when he walks through this moment, he just conquers it. And when he gets to the garden, he'll do the same thing. And he gets up, and I've, I've told you on repeat, the beauty of that passage is when it's done, when the prayer is done, when the plan is set, when, when that, that human portion of Jesus is finished struggling and the angels minister, he doesn't sit there and wait for them to come to him. He gets up, he pulls the disciples up, and he says, let's go, they're coming, let's go meet them. Now that's a man's man. That's a story of power and authority. If it's going to be this way, then let's do this. There's an eternal plan and a good purpose right here, right there. You say, man, I didn't, I didn't cause these circumstances. I don't even know what I can repent of. I don't know what I've done to deserve this. Then there is a godly thing going on right there. If you can't change it, you didn't cause it, and you can't repent from it. There's a godly thing happening right there. There's a good thing happening right there. The eternal plan of God, the purposes of God, the drawing out of your character, the, the, the visual representation of who you are in front of other people that the Lord is working on. You don't even know what God is doing. You don't even know how he's touching other people while they watch you live, watch your life struggle, watch your redemption stories. You don't even know. But here's the issue. The temptations are real. They are absolutely real. To struggle in these moments, to, to walk through them when you're hurting, when you're hungry, when you're lonely, when you're tired, to walk through the idea of fairness, they are absolutely real. And so we're going to live them and we're going to, we're going to struggle through them. And Jesus was hungry and it was 40 days and he was tired. His body was wore out, which is why when he finishes immediately, the Bible says angels come to minister to him. He was on his last leg, physically speaking. Probably on his strongest leg ever, spiritually speaking. He just conquered our enemy. He did it the first time. He's going to do it again and again. But in those moments, these temptations are real. So what happens first? Well, the first temptation is to feed your flesh. When you're in these moments of unfairness, our first temptation is to do what lies closest. It's to feed that flesh. Turn the stone into bread and just at least get that hungry belly off your plate. What does it look like for you and I, though? It could be something totally different. Your wilderness right now or your frustration might have you in, in the realm where it's not food. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's rage. It's something in you, in your flesh, that the enemy is saying, feed that and you'll feel better. Problem is, if you and I feed it, we dishonor our Lord. We've sinned against Him, so we've blocked fellowship with Him. And we've set ourselves up for disaster later down the road. You know, feeding your flesh, this one bit me real good. I'm on schedule to have a couple surgeries here in the next 30 days. 
And back in January, the idea was, you know what, I probably need to be about 15 pounds lighter. And then the quarantine happens, and I've, I've fed my flesh well, and so I'm 15 pounds heavier. So I'm really like 30 pounds away from where I wanted to be. But the idea is, when you're walking through weird moments, you feed that flesh. You could say no to a bunch of stuff, but that cabinet with the peanut butter in it. Right? When making the kids a sandwich, oh, just have me a little something. We feed our flesh. The temptation is real and the enemy wants you to feed it. Feed it. You're mad. You're angry. And he says, feed it. He says, stoke it. He says, throw the fire, throw the wood on it and let it burn. Send that text. Make that call. Yell at that person. Right? Does it sound familiar or is this only me? Ain't, ain't not one head shaking yet. Feed your flesh. How about the next phase? Tempt the Lord. Right? Jesus, well, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the Temple Mount. And the Bible says, and he quotes three lines out of four of that psalm. Three lines out of the four, the enemy knows, and he quotes them to Christ. Throw yourself off the Temple Mount, for it is written, he will give his angels charge over you, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Tempt the Lord, Jesus. Manipulate his word to fit your wants. Or start making your own plan. I heard a person once preach on this and he made the comment that if Jesus had thrown himself off the Temple Mount at a certain time of day, there would have been tons of people there and they would have crowned him immediately. If this follows through and you fly off the Temple Mount and you don't die and the angels of God scoop you up, pick you up and set you on ground, there are going to be people say, make him king right now. Thought, man, what an amazing thing. Why? Because he's just deviated outside of the will of God, which is you're going to be king, but you're going to do it through the cross. Not the way the world sees. So tempt the Lord, manipulate his words, and make your own plan. And finally, what do we get? Execute your own plan. This is the temptations that are going to fall into your life as you're struggling with things that are fair and not fair. Feed your flesh. It's fast. It's easy. It's right now. I don't have control over anything else, but I got control of what I feed myself, and I want to feel good, and I want this, and I want that, or I want to look at this, or I want to talk to this person. I just want to nibble on it. And all of a sudden, we're wrecked. You're two days from surgery and 30 pounds from where you wanted to be. I'm a poor hip. We'll be all beat up when I get up. I just want to nibble on it. I want that dopamine to release. I want to be in charge and to feel it. And that's where it starts. And then all of a sudden, we're tempting the Lord and we're manipulating his word. We're making our own plans. And then finally, we're executing our own plans. The plan for Christ is to be king. And the devil says, I'll give it to you. All you got to do is bow the knee. I'll show you everything the world has to offer, Jesus. All you have to do is bow that knee to me and I will hand it to you. This is not a false claim in its entirety. If Jesus doesn't conquer Satan and take the keys back, he's actually in charge. There's some real theological implications that come with this passage. He's not making a false claim. It ain't like Jesus just looking at him saying, you can't do that, devil. A piece of it can be done. He's the prince of the power of the air right now. He looks at Christ and he says, just bow your knee. Worship me and I'll give them to you right now. Nothing else to do. It sounds so easy. Man, these temptations are real. As we talk about this stuff, I am not making light. Again, you look at some of the things that, that have come across our desk. 
come across your computer, come across your phone. These are real. These temptations are hard. People are struggling. Friends and the family have died. Some way too young, way too early. These temptations are real. And what do you and I have to do? Well, you look at David and you look at the life of Christ and there's this little statement now that everybody talks about, you know, Netflix and chill. Well, I've got one for you. Sit still and chill. You say, what are you talking about? Well, this is why theology matters. We believe in doctrine. We believe in theology. I believe you ought to know your Bible. I believe you ought to have a worldview that works. Because eventually if your theology stinks, your life's going to put you in a position where you can't figure out what's going on. If your worldview stinks, if it lacks, then life is going to put you in a position where you can't figure it out. It's, it, that's the Job curse of his friends. Their theology was poor. It was limited. So when they see Job's life, they come in and they say, you're sinning. Repent and it'll be fine. God blesses the righteous and he curses the wicked and you're obviously wicked. That's the whole point of that passage. That's what throws them off. Their theology is incomplete. So what's our theology say? It says this, the world is broken. Bad stuff happens to you, absolutely. Bad stuff happens to me, absolutely. It happens to the sweetest 95-year-old woman on the planet. Honestly, probably in some kind of quarantine or nursing home or hospital room by herself right now. Is that a bad thing that happens? You better believe it. Absolutely ridiculous. Insane. But this world is broken. And bad stuff happens. How about this one? People are broken. They're wicked, they're nasty, and they're evil. And sometimes they really want to get you. Sometimes you're just a piece in a puzzle. They're trying to get what they want, and you just happen to be the one standing between them and that. But some people are far more wicked than that. Some people just hate to hate. And if they get an opportunity to gouge you or hurt you, they're going to do it. People are broken. That's our theology. We don't deny that. The Bible is filled with them. How about this one? The enemy has a certain amount of control. He does. He's the prince of the power of the air. Jesus came and defeated him. The problem was before that, Adam and Eve believed him and handed him the keys to the kingdom. Romans chapter 8 says the whole world groans waiting for you and I to be revealed from perfection again, waiting for you and I to take our rightful place in communion with God and right communion with this world. That is a beautiful passage in Romans chapter 8. I had a buddy once talk about every time he saw an animal hit on the road, that's the verse that come to his mind. Some sweet little ugly possums running around that eat up all the ticks. I hate seeing any one of them get hit on the road. It's the verse that comes to my mind. All creation is groaning. Cancer, creation groaning. Viruses, creation groaning. The enemy has a certain amount of control. How about this one? Be angry and don't sin. That's in your theology. It's in mine. Sometimes you have a right to be angry. You do not have a right to sin. Sometimes you have a right to draw a line in the sand and take up for those that can't take up for themselves. That is absolutely within your right. Jesus stood up to bullies all the time. Be angry, don't sin. And let me tell you something, as far as just personally speaking, if my anger level shoots up higher when I am wronged than it does when others are wronged, I've got to flip that. I've got to invert that. It's just protective for your heart. Be more upset about other people being hurt than you are about yourself and let God deal with your life. You know where your standing is. You know who's in charge of your life. How about this one? Your God is good. That is totally in our theology. That's the temptation of the Garden of Eden. 
Did God really say? Question his word. Oh, well, he only said that because he doesn't want you to be like him. Question his character. Question his word. Question his character. 6,000-ish years later, we're still dealing with the same two temptations. Does the word of God really say? That's probably because God's withholding something good from you. How about this one? He's paying attention. You say it don't feel like it. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't change the fact that he is. It doesn't change the fact. In Job's story, he was paying attention the whole time. In David's story, he's paying attention the whole time. How does David not take the full force of the spear? It has little to do with his agility and much more to do with God's plan. Do you understand that? That could really help somebody out right now. If you and I would just believe that. It's not David's agility that gets him out of the way of Saul's spear. It's God's plan. It's not your agility that's going to get you out of the way of the, the next disaster set up for us, whether it be the coronavirus or whatever else is going on. It is not your ability, your agility to move and shuck and dive and move. and Right? It's not you. God has a plan. Rest in that. He's paying attention. How about this one? The payoff will be worth it. You see, God does honor the righteous. He does destroy and wreck the wicked. The evil deeds are doled out. There is punishment in due time. And for all of eternity, you will be blessed because you've done the right thing in boot camp. You've done the right thing right now. You honored God with the way you lived and the way you struggled. And where there were hard moments, God doesn't care. He allows you to come into his throne room and cry and weep and struggle. He allows that. The Psalms take advantage of it. And as they come this morning to play, as we get ready to wrap up, like this theology that we have is very robust. It accounts for so much of what this life is going to bring to us. The world is broken. People are broken. The enemy has a certain amount of control. He does have power. He is in, he is in a lot of control in certain industries, whether it be entertainment or places in D.C. or whatever else is going on. He has a lot of power there. He has a lot of influence there. But you and I can be angry and not sin. Our God is good. He is paying attention. Right? The payoff is going to be worth it. And finally, I just want to show it to you like this. The life of Jesus proves all these points. And it does so with a man that never deserved any of the evil that was doled out. He deserved only good. If he would have been judged by God, it would have said, well done. He deserved nothing of the evil that was doled out. Our theology withholds that idea. So when you and I are struggling with these temptations, look to Christ. See his strength, his power, his authority. He's given them to you. You can be an overcomer as well. It's the gift of God. Would you stand with me this morning as they sing? If you want to come and pray, feel free.